Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, I'm Stefan Fatsis, the author of Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic, and this is Slate's Sports Podcast. Hang up and listen for the week of January 14th, 2020. On this week's show, we'll discuss Louisiana State University's 42-25 destruction of Clemson in Monday night's college football championship game, which possibly made someone on this show content, if not even happy. Jeff Passan of ESPN will join us to assess the punishment handed down by Major League Baseball to the Houston Astros for systematically cheating in the year they won the World Series and beyond. And finally, we'll talk to Slate's Daniel Engber about his wrenching story about a woman who accused three New York Mets players of raping her in 1991, how those players weren't charged, and how she and the story were forgotten. Joining me from our New Orleans bureau, his parents' house, is Josh Levine, Slate's national editor and the author of The Queen, The Forgotten Life Behind an American Myth. Josh, welcome. I'm pretty happy, Stefan. I don't know what the implication was, that I'm not uh, capable of experiencing joy. Well, you're a little bit anhedonic when it comes to these things, let's be honest. Last week you said you're a dispassionate observer, not a fan. <laughs> did I say that? You did that say that. Like something I would say. Yes, but enough about, we'll talk more about the game. We have some important announcements for our listeners today. Josh, why don't we start by explaining why you've been in New Orleans the past three weeks? I wanted to go to the game, man. You needed three weeks of prep to go to the game. Also, the Saints game was last week. True. But no, I've been working on a new season of Slate's award-winning podcast, Slow Burn. It's going to be about David Duke and his political rise in Louisiana in the 80s and 90s, which is a story I've really been wanting to tell for a long time. It's a story that's important to me. It was a huge thing in the state when I was growing up here, and it's a really you know, haunting episode from American history, one that I think is really resonant today. And when I mentioned award-winning, critically acclaimed, what have you, I mean, this is a series that in the hands of Leon Nafak and then Joel Anderson has just been really amazing. And I've had so much fun working on it. And that leads into our other announcement. The host of season three of Slow Burn, Slate's Joel Anderson, is going to be with us Every week from now on, Stefan, I think I speak for both of us when I say that Joel is one of our favorite people to talk to about sports or anything else. And we're so excited to have him be our third panelist on Hangout. So why don't we say hello to him? Because he is here today. Joel, welcome to the show. We are so psyched to have you joining us. Oh, that's great. I could hear all of that. Thank you. <laughs> that was really nice to hear from all the way out here in California. Yeah, man, I'm excited. This is exactly where I want to be and exactly what I want to be doing. And we just couldn't contain Josh. He had to step out from behind the curtain to do season four. So I'm even more excited to see. Well, not more excited. I mean, I'm as excited to do this as I am to see what Josh does with season four, because I think it's going to be great. Thanks, man. And Joel's going to be doing writing and, and podcasting 
stuff for Slate going forward. And the Biggie and Tupac season was so amazing. And there's going to be a live tour mm -hmm. coming up in February. And now that, Joel, you're on Hang Up, we will be promoting the hell out of the live tour. <laughs> we would be doing it anyway, but... Oh, you guys were holding it over my head until I joined. Yeah. I see. Okay, but tell, people, right. tell people where you're going to be. <laughs> yeah, uh, we're going to start the first live show in D.C. on February 5th. The next day, go to New York on the 6th. And then we'll come out to the West Coast where I'm at, February 11th in L.A. and February 13th in San Francisco. And there just might be a show in Austin for some festival thing that happens down there in March. Um, still working out details, but just stay tuned and we might be down there for my, my native Texans. Slate.com slash live is where you find out about that and get tickets. Stefan, I would have to say that one of the biggest things I'm excited about on the show, now that Joel is here with us for the long haul, is that my friend is as big of a college football fan as I am. So you can just sit back, <laughs> relax, let us talk about LSU's 42 to 25 win over Clemson. I was in the Superdome for it in the press box and I was happy. I'll confess. I was raising my fingers in joy so as not to violate the prohibition on cheering in the press box. You weren't one of the two people that was cheering for Trump when he came out into the field. <laughs> I heard about that story in the press box. but I was very loudly seething during that, <laughs> during that moment, but, but no, I, I was not. But this was a culmination of, objectively, one of the greatest seasons in college football history. LSU had the most uh, points of any team ever in the AP poll era, I believe. And this was, you know, Clemson, Joel, was the best defense in college football this year. And LSU and Joe Burrow put up, as they've put up all year, record passing numbers in that uh, 42 to 25 win. So you were definitely dispassionate and not fake dispassionate. So what can you tell me and us about LSU and their victory? I think, you know, what's a testament to how good LSU was this season and particularly last night is that there was a point in the third quarter where I felt sorry for Clemson. <laughs> You know, <laughs> which is which is unbelievable. I mean, they were on a 29 game winning streak. You know, they beat an Ohio State team that was as good as any I saw in the country all year. Right. And in the late in the third quarter, I was like, oh, Clemson doesn't have it. And it, I mean, think about this. LSU put up 628 yards, scored 42 points on Clemson. And I still thought they did pretty good, all things considered, which just shows you that LSU's offense has just totally changed, like, I guess, the scale for what we think is possible with offense. Like, it used to be that you could win a game in college football by, you know, rolling up 400 yards. That was a lot of yards in a game. And, like, they almost had that by, like, I think, like, halftime or something like mm -hmm. that. It just, what Josh said about this is objectively one of the best teams in college football history. It's hard to think that that's not true looking at the statistics and the way that they play it because the statistics almost don't even tell the story it's the it's like looking at them seeing them see joe burrow escaping from pressure throwing it up to jamar chase and jefferson and burrow handing off to clyde edwards hilaire like it's just really difficult to imagine what could an offense do to be better than what lsu was this year we didn't even talk about the defense but they just were the most unstoppable force i've seen in college football history and Clemson just unfortunately for them ran into a buzzsaw last night. I don't think there's anything they could have done differently that would have changed the outcome. What struck me is that it felt like LSU had the best offensive players on the field at every position <laughs> by far. 
I mean, yeah. Clyde Edwards Hilaire was was running like like Barry Sanders last night. He was plowing people over. Randy Moss's kid, who you didn't even mention, yeah. scored two or was it three touchdowns? I lost count. The wide receiver course seemed to be three inches taller and two steps faster than anyone that Clemson was able to put on them. I mean, it it, it really felt like a like a mismatch, which is crazy yeah. in a championship game against a team that hadn't lost in what two years. Yeah, I mean, it feels like that in retrospect, but the feeling is a very stressed out partisan. <laughs> you know, you have to remember Clemson was ahead 17 to 7. LSU had not had a 10-point deficit all year. There was so much talk going into the game about Brent Venables, the Clemson defensive coordinator, and his wizardry with scheme and how he's able to confuse uh, opposing offenses, quarterbacks, and offensive coordinators. And that certainly was true for the first three series of the of the game. LSU punted three consecutive times, right. which was the first time they had done that all year. They were also playing really well with field position. LSU was pinned deep every time. And so, you know, it did not look like LSU was indomitable and unstoppable and that it was a pure talent mismatch. And so I think you have to give credit to Burrow and to you know, Joe Brady and Steven Zminger, the offensive coordinators, and to the other players as well for, you know, they didn't just go out and totally dominate from the jump. And they didn't have necessarily, they, they might have looked like they had superior athletic ability, but Clemson defense is a, amazing and great athletes. And they did adjust and they figured it out. And then they started to roll and pour it on and look like they couldn't be stopped. I mean, the thing that was so telling to me is that, you know, Clemson came in, their corners really touted Joel and, and Joe Burrow talked after the game about like, I couldn't believe they were playing man to man against Jamar Chase, who's like, you know, the Blitnikoff winner, best receiver in the country. And he said he was so disbelieving that he wouldn't even throw to Chase on the first couple <laughs> series because he thought they must be disguising something or like trying to trick him. But then it turned out that that's really what they were doing. They put AJ Terrell, who's you know, going to be a high NFL draft pick on Chase. And Burrow's like, all right, I'm just going to throw to Jamar Chase every time. And he had more than 200 yards and all of these long plays. And I think the point there is, you know, as you said in your first answer, there is really no way to stop this team when you have five guys going out on routes every time who are among the five best pass catchers in the country with a quarterback who is unbelievably accurate and mobile and is also extremely good at diagnosing what defenses are doing, you know, it was, I guess, only a matter of time. In keeping with the narrative where LSU is not this dominant athletic force and that they did have to fight and work to win this, it is worth remembering that these are all disparate parts that LSU put together, right? You're right. If we went back three years ago and said, hey, Joe Burrow, Clyde Edwards-Hilaire, Jamar Chase, like, are you going to be able to dominate college football with this? Justin Jefferson was a two-star uh, yeah. high school. LSU beat out Kansas to get Jamar Chase. Joe Burrow's other option was Cincinnati when he was looking to transfer from Ohio State and lost out to Dennis Haskins. Clyde Edwards-Hilaire, I mean, he did get a scholarship to LSU, but like nobody would have thought that he was on the level like of Darius Geis, the guy who preceded him at Baton Rouge Catholic and at LSU. So yeah, I mean, this is all a testament to like the work that LSU put in and their ability to put people in the right place. And we haven't even brought up Joe Brady, the very young assistant they brought in from the New Orleans Saints who, you know, kind of revamped their offense and made them into the unit that they are today. 
it's really a testament to like, I mean, I know this is sound corny, but it's really a testament to the idea of reinvention, teamwork, and work ethic, um, because none of this was given. And if you go back to, you know, early September when LSU was barely edging out Texas at home, a Texas team that we later found out wasn't all that good. And then you go to what we saw last night. Obviously, you know, a lot of things had to come together and LSU is responsible for a lot of that. And even, you know, if you do have really amazing players, they have to play well. I mean, it's a banal thing to say, but Trevor Lawrence, it's not like that game discredited him in in any way. Mm -hmm. I thought that he made really good plays at various points during the game, and he looked like really scary if you were uh, rooting against Clemson, but he didn't have a good game. I mean, by his admission, by Debo Sweeney's admission, he had all of those overthrows, whether it was just because he was a little bit off, whether it was because LSU was doing something, but he just didn't play well. And in every game this year, and then in the SEC championship game, in the Alabama game, in the semi against Oklahoma, and against Clemson, Joe Burrow didn't have a bad game. He barely had a bad series (laughs) all year. And, you know, he's 23 years old. He's his fifth year in college. One of those was a redshirt year. He's a grad transfer, so he already graduated from undergrad. He only takes classes online. He just goes to the football <laughs> he's facility. Pro- he's a professional football he player is a that professional, doesn't get paid. <laughs> he, is, he is a he professional is. football player. And go and at the Dome and we're kind of walking around New Orleans with all the number nine juries with jerseys with Burrow and the various, in the Cajun spelling and in the, con- the conventional Ohio one. You know, this guy could have, you know, in John Hawk's documentary about college football, the history of college football, he talks about on ESPN. how, yeah, you know, they talk about how Johnny Manziel could have made $10 million mm. licensing his name and likeness at, at A&M. Burrow could have cleared that maybe more with, uh, with in- inflation. I mean, this guy is a professional. College kind of worked for him in the sense that he made himself incredibly famous and worked his way up to being the number one pick in the draft. He should have been compensated more along the way or compensated at all along the way. But this is a guy who used the college system and who LSU definitely benefited more from Joe Burrow being in college than I think Joe Burrow benefited from being in yeah. college. But he's, you know, somebody who just spends, if you have a, a guy who's that talented, who spends all of his time working on football with great coaches and has great receivers, like this is what can happen. And a guy that I certainly, for one, before this year didn't know was that talented. And maybe because of the situation he ended up with at Ohio State, or maybe the fact that he wasn't able to be a 100% full-time college football player, professional slash college football player. Well, guys also just get better. And he's 23 years old. And that makes a difference too. The difference between a 20-year-old quarterback and a 23-year-old quarterback or any athlete is enormous in terms of intellectual development, um, emotional development, and physical development. So Joe Burrow, you're right, Josh, is sort of the embodiment of how to make a flawed system work to your advantage. Well, also the transfer system, you know, this was the year where three out of the four quarterbacks in the semifinals were transfers, and that allowed Burrow to get out of a situation, you know, this idea of commitment in college football, you're committed, but it got him, it allowed him to get out of a a place where he wasn't going to be able to show his talents and, and get to one where he would without having to sit out a year. And I think, you know, at least a positive step in this whole NCAA thing is that there's now, I think, less... People don't look askance at that. Uh, right. uh, even the kind of troglodytic 
commentators, I think, appreciate and respect the fact that, you know, Burrow uh, and, and Jalen Hurts and, you know, maybe people are a little bit less forgiving to Justin Fields, but, uh, you know, that that it's okay to do that. Yeah. And there's less tisk tisking, I think, um, in in that and in the, in the idea that we should be sympathetic to to players who are not getting compensated for playing in college sports. Back to the to the age difference. I mean, Trevor Lawrence is twenty. Come and on, Joe man. Burrow's I mean, 23. he 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 outplayed Tua like ridiculous right. degree when he was a freshman last year. Right. I mean, how much more does this guy need to emotionally and physically develop? He's already he already should be in the NFL. Right, he already should be in the NFL. But the fact that he'll have one more year, you know, it's not a benefit. He should be going to the NFL now. <laughs> Obviously, he is good enough to do that. Yeah, well, I mean, the person that exemplifies that the most is Tua himself. I mean, we got a guy, you know, Tua should have been able to leave after his sophomore year, too, right? And then he stayed just long enough to get hurt and slightly tarnish his, like, draft potential. Mm -hmm. And, like, that's the big fear because that's the game plan for every college defense in 2020 next year, right? We got to get Trevor Lawrence out of the game or we got to hurt him. And, like, that's just, like, not a, that's not a real good situation. That's something that he would face in the NFL, but at least presumably he'd be getting paid yeah. or paid more. Well, yeah, I mean, the th only thing that could stop LSU this year was Joe Burrow getting hurt. And at the end of the second quarter, when he got nailed on one of those touchdown passes to Thaddeus Moss, uh, it looked like that was coming to pass. You know, he sat on the sideline to his teammates, don't touch me. He came out early after halftime to, you know, ride an exercise bike to mm -hmm. get loose. I mean, he got nailed in the arm and in the ribs. And it's a smart, not that, I don't think that they were trying to hurt him, but you need to get hits on a quarterback like that in order to either make them skittish or make them change the game plan to get the ball out faster. That's a great point, Joel. It's yeah. like, it, not only are you putting yourself at risk in like kind of a notional sense, you're putting yourself at risk because the other team is trying to hurt you. <laughs> right. And Trevor Lawrence took one hit that ESPN showed in repeated slow motion that was the kind of coil type hit. He got hit in the midsection and his neck and head just went bobblehead. And did that affect him? Maybe it did. I mean, that was, I think, in the third quarter, but it was a brutal hit. And it's it's impossible to know how those kinds of collisions affect a player's near-term ability to do what they're supposed to do at the highest level. So I went on the field after the game at Joel's urging. Joel, my... Uh my college football reporting uh, Sherpa. Uh, he's got the experience of doing a lot of these these big games. And one of the really cool things, as somebody who's followed LSU my whole life, is seeing you know Devin White, the great linebacker, hugging Derek Stingley, the freshman this year. You had you know the great cornerbacks from LSU, Tre'Davious White, Greedy Williams, were all there, like you know, congratulating their friends and reveling in it. You know, Jarvis Landry and Michael Clayton, two of the great receivers from LSU. And I feel there's this idea of like playing for your school and, and brotherhood that can be sold in a kind of pernicious way NCAA-wise, that like that's all you need and um, that's what we provide and how could you dare um, ask for any more than that? But, you know, Joel is somebody who did play college sports and somebody, you know, you still feel a connection to, to TCU where you went emotionally like that. It's real and it's legitimate. And to see that between the players, it's not phony or fake. At all. It's just like they love their experience there. Or, and, you know, they're friends with the guys on the current team. And that's kind of cool to see. 
Yeah, it's like a frat. You know, it's like a fraternity. And I just remember, you know, last year when they had the championship game uh, out here in uh, it, it's Santa Clara, you know, right near San Jose and Clemson won. And Deshaun Watson and DeAndre Hopkins and Ray Ray McLeod and all these other, you know, former Clemson greats are just waiting and hanging out with the players. And like, you can't fake that. Like, so to the extent that there is some value to the amateur experience is that, oh, like they're all sort of together cordoned off and they're on this mission together. And it's really hard to like break that bond. Like they always sort of hold that. So I always, you know, like I, you know, I, I don't, you know, don't think that's bullshit. I think that that's something that's actually important in a big part of football and college, the college football experience because it's not the same. Whenever guys go on to pros, like you hear them talk about, it. it's never, it's never quite what it was. Like I don't think, you know, uh, OBJ will be going back to the Giants if they play if they play in the Super Bowl next year and hand out, <laughs> uh, you know, hand out money to Sterling Shepard or whoever, <laughs> you know, whoever else is there uh, for the Giants next year, right? So uh, he he would only do that for LSU. I don't think the Giants are going to the Super Bowl next year. I just want to say that, that's a fair point too. <laughs> he might not be welcome on the sideline, even uh, I would imagine. So yeah, that probably is not the best analogy. All right, Joel, we're going to ease you into this whole hang up and listen thing. <laughs> okay. I've never done this before. Please be gentle. One segment this week. We'll have you back for the bonus. We're going to talk some more football there. But then three segments next week and in perpetuity. How does that sound? That sounds good, man. Looking forward to it. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple. 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. In the long history of baseball, certain objects define an era and stir fans' souls. The partially smoked cigar left behind by Babe Ruth at a Philadelphia brothel in 1924. The first contract signed by Jackie Robinson with the Brooklyn Dodgers in 1947. The potato that minor league catcher Dave Bresnahan threw into left field in 1987. The bottle of Androstein Dione that AP reporter Steve Wilstein spotted in Mark McGuire's locker in 1998. To that list, let us now add the garbage can on which the Houston Astros banged during their World Series winning 2017 season to alert hitters whether the opposing pitcher was about to throw a fastball or an off-speed pitch. The scheme, which also involved a center field camera and cell phones, was revealed in November by Ken Rosenthal and Evan Drellick of The Athletic, and it claimed its first casualties on Monday. Major League Baseball Commissioner Rob Manfred suspended Houston general manager Jeff Lunau and manager A.J. Hinch for the 2020 season, stripped the team of first and second round draft picks in 2020 and 2021, and fined it the maximum $5 million. Shortly after the announcement, Astros owner Jim Crane fired Lunau and Hinch. ESPN baseball writer Jeff Passan broke the news of the punishments. He joins us now. Hey, Jeff. Hello, gentlemen. How are you? 
We are well. Uh, a lot to discuss here. Let's start with the penalties. In his nine-page statement, Manfred said the Astros' conduct raised questions about the integrity of games, and while it is impossible to determine whether the cheating impacted the results on the field, the perception of some that it did causes significant harm to the game. On the one hand, Jeff, the scope of the punishments is unprecedented. Manfred came down hard on a corporate culture in Houston that fostered illicit behavior. On the other hand, no players were sanctioned, and you can argue, as many people are arguing, that the Astros might have stolen a World Series. What needles was Rob Manfred trying to thread here? (laughs) He was trying to thread every needle imaginable. He was trying to thread the needle of sanctioning one of his 30 bosses in Jim Crane, the owner of the Houston Astros. He was trying to thread the needle of coming down hard enough on the Astros that rest of Major League Baseball, whether it is executives, managers, coaches, or players, see the punishments and say, we are not going to do that. But he was also trying to thread the needle to do it so that a public has its faith restored in a game in which two of the last three World Series champions are accused of cheating. I do not in any way envy Rob Manfred and and the very precarious dance he had to do here. But I also think there are some spots where he failed. And and I think particularly there's an undercurrent of, I don't know if anger is the right word, but disappointment among ownership outside of Houston in the way that Jim Crane was dealt with. And the fact that while the constitution of baseball says he can fine him only $5 million, a $5 million fine for a billionaire is like a dollar fine for us. I mean, it's just nothing. And it's going to do nothing to dissuade owners or teams from saying, hey, why don't we go and do this? Because if the price of a world championship is a couple of heads rolling, some draft picks and $5 million, every single owner in baseball will say, I'll pay that. Crane did seem a little bit shamed and chastened in his press conference. And I was surprised that he fired Hinch and Lunau. You know, when the Saints bounty gate thing happened, they stuck by Sean Payton after he got the year suspension. So there's precedent for, you know, not firing a a coach in, in this situation. It doesn't strike me as something that Crane necessarily had to do. And so um, it felt significant that he took that step. And, you know, Jeff, you might argue that every owner would accept this penalty, but it it didn't seem like Crane was happy or felt validated. It seemed like he felt ashamed. I, you know, I've seen the way that the Houston Astros and Jim Crane have operated in the past. And, and I go back, let's go back to October and the Brandon Taubman situation. And, and Jim Crane is the owner of this team that puts out this absolutely ham-fisted statement uh, going after Stephanie Epstein, the reporter from Sports Illustrated, for writing a completely truthful story. And so Jim Crane's public posture on certain things, uh, I don't tend to take at face value. I guess the question is, how much distance is there between Crane and, and Lunau and who is really responsible in these Incidents and it, it it was if we are going to criticize Manfred, it is extremely inconsistent to say that Lunau bears responsibility for everything that everyone under him was doing, but that Crane bears no responsibility for everything that anyone was doing underneath him. 
couldn't have uh, put it any better. And and the the farcical, the I think the most farcical part of this is that Rob Manfred very clearly and explicitly stated this was a player driven scheme, with the exception of Alex Cora, of course, but a player driven scheme in which no players ended up getting suspended. I mean, this. This just, and listen, I understand why no players got suspended because the easiest route for baseball to punishment and to trying to wrap up this very ugly and uh, sordid chapter of its history was to discipline people quickly. And the quick discipline came via this memo that Manfred had sent out September 15th, 2017. And this memo said that if there is illicit use of technology, by a team, then the general manager and manager will be held responsible. And that is exactly what happened in this situation. You didn't see anybody else get disciplined. And you're probably going to see Alex Cora uh, because of his time as manager of the Boston Red Sox and what he did as bench coach of the Houston Astros end up wearing it awfully hard and probably lose his job because of it. Right. And Manfred said in the statement that he gave players immunity in order yeah. to testify. And Manfred also knew that any punishment of players was going to be litigated by the union. Um, and he also said he couldn't determine which of them did what. And I've been trying to sort of sort through what would be a more draconian or, or, or more appropriate level of punishment. I mean, what what can baseball do? What could Ma- Rob Manfred had done? Sure, he could have suspended the owner the way George Steinbrenner was once suspended for life and returned a few years later. But what can you do here? Strip the championship? I mean, I don't think you can no, do that. Vacate no. wins? It's- Give them nope. extra losses. I mean, you nope. can't do you can't do what soccer does in Europe and like demote the team to the minor <laughs> leagues. You could ban them from signing free agents. You could do that. Maybe you could count fifty million bucks against the luxury tax. I'm not saying they should do that. I'm just saying that's a mechanism that is very common in international soccer. Right, and, but I think where Manfred had a real problem, Jeff, is that if you go too far, you are indicting your own sport in a way that you're not right now by giving out these suspensions that ultimately lead to firings of one general manager and one field manager. Yeah. I, and I think that's a, that's a very fair and reasonable point on the balance that Manfred had to strike the needle that he had to thread, however you want to put it. I, I do think though, that the, the clearest path for him to take to hold everybody, including Jim Crane accountable would have been a fine that was larger than $5 million. That That's the most laughable part of this whole thing. And, and I understand that he would be expanding his powers by doing that. But what this does is it reinforces the notion that Rob Manfred is a commissioner who is beholden to the owners. That's every commissioner in every sport. It's not Rob Manfred. Yeah, I listen, I know that was what the response was going to be, and that's fair, but can you give me another situation or another sport that has had something like this where the commissioner hasn't stepped up and been draconian? I mean, don't you think Roger Goodell, in the case of Spygate, in the, the suspension of Tom Brady, was taking draconian measures, and uh, eventually, you know, it got walked back, but at least he endeavored 
to do something like that. I think the best analogy here is how David Stern handled the Tim Donahue situation where he pretended like it wasn't actually a problem, <laughs> that where he got up and explained that it was just one guy in the league didn't actually have this this problem. And he just kind of convinced everybody that the league was was clean and had done everything right. And it was like total BS, but everybody bought it because Stern was such a, a wizard at, at public relations. And that I think is getting to Stefan's point is that Manfred wanted to paint. And, and I think everybody's willing to, to buy because the Astros are so hated that this was a, a rogue organization. And I think uh, where I want this conversation to go, and I'm interested in both of your takes, is like, this is obviously bad for baseball to have this story out there. But the actual crime, the quote unquote crime, even if Manfred sent a memo or whatever, everybody is stealing signs. Everybody has stolen signs in baseball since baseball was invented. So even if you think that what the Astros did was like worse than typical sign stealing, it's like a matter of degree. It's not like they were doing anything so extraordinarily awful. And so I think the the reason these I don't know, are, are I don't know you either. really Yeah, are you really trying to say that stealing signs from second base and and touching your kneecap to let a, a hitter know that a fastball is coming is equivalent to banging on a trash can to let him know literally every pitch that's coming. And not only banging on a trash can, but using the best available technology, not the trash can, and <laughs> and doing it basically, you know, you're, they were exploiting the extension of video into the game itself that Major League Baseball adopted in 2014. I mean, they Major League Baseball gave teams approval to put replay rooms 10 feet from the dugouts. This was a slippery slope. Manfred deserves to be criticized for not recognizing the potential for exploitation of technology here. So I, I do think I mean, it's weren't worth... The, weren't the Giants tipping every pitch in the 1951 World Series? Yeah, they were so trying to. How is, this, how is this new? Like, it's it doesn't change my belief about the nature of, you know, wh whether you call it cheating or I would call it cheating. It doesn't change my view of how teams are cutthroat and are, are trying to win. This does not make me disillusioned about the sport or, it, you know, it's going to be punished and it, it should be punished. But this idea that the integrity of the game has been breached in some unprecedented way doesn't carry that much water with me. I don't know, man. A team like won the World Series in a year in which it was cheating, but I, I don't. I don't know how much more plain and simple it gets than that. And, and you don't want them to lose the World Series, though. Hypocritical, much <laughs> passing. <laughs> I don't want them to get the World Series vacated because I feel like that is whitewashing history. And and this is taking us into a, an entirely different scope of conversation, whether it's with PEDs and the way that baseball has tried to whitewash history or in college football and in the shameful whitewashing of history with vacation of titles. But that that's a whole nother podcast for another time. I think that ultimately what we're going to look at here is that the Astros were part of a culture that had grown in baseball where it was left unchecked for a long time. 
And the players, I think, got different ideas of what they actually do. And the, the moral and ethical breaks that were there for a long time just got cut. And when that happened, I think all of a sudden you you start saying to yourself, well, you know, this is okay. And, and we're winning and we're going to keep doing this. I was talking with a longtime general manager last night and we were talking about the, the quandary. He said, you know, I've asked myself, like, what if I knew this was going on? I would like to think that I would have stopped it. But would I have if we were winning? If we were succeeding, if this was working, I, you know, again, I'd like to think that I would have, but if I'm being honest with myself, no, I probably would have gone right along with it. Let's spin this forward a little bit, Jeff. Tom Verducci and Sports Illustrated reported that Astros personnel told Major League Baseball's investigators about eight other teams that they believed were using technology to steal signs in 2017, 2018, in that time period. In addition to Alex Cora, the manager of the Red Sox, who's clearly neck deep in this, is going to face a large punishment. Do you think that there are going to be other shoes to fall here? Yeah, I think the Red Sox are actually going to get hammered a lot worse than people realize because what they did was a lot closer, I think, to what Josh was talking about than what the Astros did. The Red Sox used video to decode sign sequences, told players on the bench, and if you reach second base, you could look in there, figure it out, and tip off the the hitter at the plate. That's like old school subterfuge right there with a little technological twist. And yet you go back and in the original sin here, or at least the original thing that was caught was in August 2017, the Red Sox used an Apple Watch to relay signs to their bench against the New York Yankees. The Yankees reported them for it. Major League Baseball came and fined them. And it was a pretty piddling fine in the grand scheme of things. And the Red Sox said, no, sir, we won't do that again. And then the next year, they went out, not only did it, but won a world championship while doing it. So running afoul of this this edict that had been in place since September 15th, 2017, and doing it so brazenly and blatantly, I think the, the Red Sox are going to lose a lot of draft picks. I think there's a chance that they're going to lose international money. And I think ultimately, they're going to need a new manager. What about other teams, Jeff? I think that Major League Baseball is in defense mode right now. I think that the only way other teams get investigated are if the reporters, whether it is from ESPN, The Athletic, or any other media outlet, find out something that happened and write about it. Because I don't think Rob Manfred wants to go looking for what's actually out there. Remember, I was down at the owners' meetings in Arlington, Texas this year. And I remember Rob Manfred standing there in a hard hat at the new stadium. Everyone looked completely ridiculous. And the commissioner was standing there talking about how he believed this was just one team. He was only going to be looking into the Astros. And I think that right there showed what the MO for Major League Baseball here has been. They want to button this thing up as quickly as they possibly can. And the fact that they have to look into the Red Sox right now is an enormous inconvenience because the more teams that get implicated, the more this looks like something that was sport-wide, which it clearly and obviously was. The Astros and the Red Sox happen to be the only ones so far to get caught and to have the evidence strong enough to go and write about them. I mean, I remember when the Saints thing came out, there were all these stories about 
how other teams had had bounty systems. There were there were leaks, and if if I know our friends at the Astros, like I think I do, they will probably be uh, <laughs> trying to get that story out out into the the world. That um, you know, if they do have evidence that other teams were doing it, we might just see that evidence in the press. And I did just want to circle back to Manfred's report because the most striking thing in it was the way that he connected the sign stealing to the Brandon Taubman incident to the Astros culture. And on the one hand, you could argue that that's Manfred and Major League Baseball trying to just focus on the Astros when maybe this is a a more sport-wide issue. But there was, I guess it felt kind of satisfying to see the Astros get called out in that way and to see them be criticized and damned for having this organizational culture that would abet the kind of behavior that happened in the locker room that happened, you know, that Stephanie Epstein wrote about and the behavior that would then have the Astros try to explain it away and cover it up. And so I appreciated that. Yeah, I appreciated it too. And I thought the most hilarious part was when Jim Crane was asked about it and said, quote, I don't agree with that. Like when the, when the, you know, Rob Manfred in, in, at certain points in this report, I think took principled stances. And I, I appreciated that because, you know, trying to, trying to balance placating one of your bosses with getting the the truth and reality out there is a, a very difficult thing to do. And when you talk about an organization's culture as being quote unquote problematic and blaming it on, quote, an environment that allowed the conduct described in this report to have occurred. I mean, that's awfully damning right there. And and it just backs up a lot of what I've reported, what Evan Drellick's reported, what Stephanie Epstein's reported about the Astros, who they are and how they've operated. For the longest time, they have done it with impunity because you know what they did really well? They built a really good baseball team. And when you build a really good baseball team, at least in their minds, it it allows you to act in a particular way. And that particular way was a lot of times unbecoming. And I think it is is fair and reasonable to say that that sort of hubris that they developed over the years absolutely can be linked hand in hand to what went on. Jeff Passan covers baseball for ESPN. We are always happy to have him on this podcast. Jeff, thank you for helping us understand the Astro scandal better. Gentlemen, I'm always happy to be on this podcast. Thank you for having me. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. (gasps) No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Before we talk to Dan Engber about his amazing piece about the rape allegation against the New York Mets players from the 1990s, wanted to let you know that in our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, Josh, Joel, and I will talk about Lamar Jackson. Derrick Henry, and other stuff from the NFL playoffs last weekend. If you want to hear that and you're not a member, you can sign up for Slate Plus for just $35 for the first year. You can do that at slate.com slash hangupplus. Last year, Dan Ingber came across a passing reference to an incident involving his favorite baseball team, 
a long-ago allegation about a rape at New York Mets spring training. The names of the accused players, Dwight Gooden, Vince Coleman, and Daryl Boston, would come out in March 1992. The next month, a prosecutor in Florida announced that no charges would be brought against any of them. And after that, the story was pretty much forgotten. I'm a Mets fan, like Dan is, and neither one of us remembered it. In a piece published on Slate on Sunday night, Dan looks back at the investigation, the way it was covered by the press, and what happened to the alleged victim. It's a gutting story and a deep one. It touches on what we remember and what we don't and why. And it's especially powerful to read it now as we're going through a societal reckoning about sex and power. Because, as Dan writes, a reckoning of just that sort seemed on the verge of happening almost 30 years ago. Joining us now from our New York studio is Dan Ingber. Hey, Dan, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Before we start, Dan, I want to say this is a really tough subject. It's tough to report on. It's tough to talk about and presumably to hear as well. It's also important to reiterate that none of the three players were ever arrested or charged in connection to the case. Gooden and Coleman both said in response to requests for comment from Slate that this is a totally false accusation. Boston declined to comment. And I also want to note that the alleged victim died in 2012. And since she never expressed a willingness to have her name publicly attached to the story, Dan, you chose to refer to her by a pseudonym, uh, that pseudonym being Cindy Powell. So Dan, why don't you start by telling us her version of events? What did Cindy Powell say happened? Sure. So Cindy Powell in early March 1992 flew down to Port St. Lucie, Florida from her home in New York City and went into the police station. She turned over a semen-stained dress and she told a story about what had happened to her a year before, also in Port St. Lucie at Met Spring Training. She said that she had been at a nightclub. She met their three Mets players, Dwight Gooden, Daryl Boston, Vince Coleman. They'd hung out for a bit at the club. Then Coleman and Boston had taken off. They had implied they were going to maybe a different bar, a different party or something. And Gooden had asked her for a ride home, or rather he had said he was stuck, and she offered him a ride home. She drove him home. When they got there, Coleman and Boston were there in the living room playing Nintendo. She said she felt uncomfortable and asked for a glass of water, at which point she was just going to go home. Gooden, she said, started pulling her into his bedroom, saying he wanted to talk to her. She got away and tried to leave the house. At that point, she said, Coleman and Boston were behind her and sort of uh, herded her into the bedroom, whereupon she said she was raped by the three of them for several hours. And then she left. She, she By her story, she kissed two of the Mets players goodnight she made the bed, and she went back to the house she was staying in with her mother, and uh, that was it. And that was a, a year before she came forward to the police. Dan, did she say why it took a year to come forward to the police um, at the time? It was obviously a very difficult thing for anyone to do. These were public figures. These were superstar athletes. Uh, the Mets were still sort of the darlings of the New York media at the time. This was one of the things that was held against her in both the media and by the police, according to your reporting. Sure. And when the prosecutor in Florida 
finally, after um, several weeks of police investigation, declined to press charges. I mean, that was one of the first things he brought up. The fact that it had taken her so long to, you know, make this formal statement to police, he said, I mean, this would have been part of the defense. And, um, and he suggested that this would have been part of an insurmountable defense for the prosecution. Now, she didn't wait a year to say... I've been raped. She waited several days. So she went home that night. I went back to the place where she was staying in Florida. And she, a few days later, would go back to New York City. And it was only upon her return to New York City a few days after the incident that she was having a glass of wine with a friend of hers and talking about her experience in Florida. And by her description, that's when she, and this is almost a direct quote from her, she realized she was raped. So there was a delay before she was sort of identifying as a victim of a sexual assault, that delay was not actually a full year. It was a few days. And then there was a many months where she, you know, was telling people that she had been raped, but was very reticent about coming forward. She made several phone calls to the Port St. Lucie police over the months to come, but she would always kind of get up right up to the line. She would start to say what had happened, but then she wouldn't want to name the players. She wouldn't want to give her name. Now, part of what was going on right at this moment was the same exact night that she said she'd been raped by the three Mets players, a woman named Patricia Bowman had well, I think we can say had sex with William Kennedy Smith at the Kennedy compound just a few miles away from the nightclub where Powell had met the Mets players. And that turned into a rape allegation and a very high-profile rape trial. William Kennedy Smith was acquitted. Patricia Bowman's name was uh, revealed to the public in the New York Times and elsewhere, and her reputation really trashed. I mean, all the stuff came out about her drug use, her history of abortions, her, you know, her so-called wild streak, as the Times reported it. So we know that Powell was watching this trial unfold and I think we can infer that she found it terrifying that the idea of coming forward against a powerful family in the Kennedy Smith case, but coming forward against a, you know, a powerful institution in the New York Mets, it must have been terrifying. So for months, you know, she's watching this unfold and there were other rape cases happening right around this time. But it wasn't until a year later that she finally felt like this was something she wanted to do and had to do. One of the most, I think, important and valuable things about this piece, Dan, is how you are able to situate the story and this allegation in a particular time. You mentioned the Patricia Bowman, William Kennedy Smith case. There was also Mike Tyson getting convicted of rape around this time, and also the Clarence Thomas hearings where Anita Hill came forward and talked about her allegations of being sexually harassed in the workplace. And this felt like a time, like the time we're going through now, like a reckoning, like a period in which something was changing about how sexual assault was perceived and talked about. There was a promise there, and I think a lot of people believe that there was a disappointment. And so, you know, can you speak to, I guess, when the accusation was made and became public How did it play out in the press and in that era? How was it talked about, written about, assessed? Right. Well, it came out at this very particular moment. So there were two 
at least two big things going on. One was, you know, this conversation, if that's the right word, a societal shift that had sort of gotten fully underway with the Clarence Thomas hearings, which were in the fall of 1991. So that was about six months after the alleged incident at Dwight Gooden's house and maybe, you know, six months before Powell came forward. So that was going on. And a whole broader discussion of date rape, that phrase was suddenly, you know, everywhere. But then specifically, there were these sports cases that were happening. You know, as you said, there was the Mike Tyson case, which was unfolding at exactly this time. And then there were other ones that we don't remember as well today. The Mike Tyson one was the most covered at the time. But there was also, you know, Kevin Mitchell was another former New York Met who right around this time was accused of rape and no charges were ever filed. And there was a case involving the Cincinnati Bengals, where a woman alleged that she'd been gang raped by something like a dozen players on the team at a party. So there was just a lot of these things going on. And again, nothing was ever proved or no charges were filed in that case. Yes, yes. The only one where that I know of where there was um, the Mike Tyson case ended in a conviction. But the other ones I mentioned, there was no even charges filed. But these things were being discussed. And right at the time that Powell came forward, I mean, this issue was so live in the culture that if you go back and look at, you know, the TV, what was on TV right then, I found an, an article from that month, not, it doesn't mention this Mets case at all, but it just mentions how these sorts of stories, like date rape stories, were all over TV. It was kind of a trend piece in the New York Times by the TV columnist about how this show and that show and the other show, every show has a date rape, date rape episode now. There was an L.A. Law episode that I watched that aired in the midst of the Mets investigation that was about a professional baseball player who had been accused of raping a female fan and the way it plays out, it's like this is an off-the-news thing about the Mets story, but it's not. I talked to the woman who wrote that episode, and she said, oh, no, no, this was just something you know that was on our mind. So, I mean, just the fact that you had TV shows about professional baseball players being accused of rape in a very similar way, I think it just it, that sort of speaks to the broader context of how these sorts of stories were everywhere at that point. And when this became public, the New York media, particularly the tabloid media, of course, was all over it. How was it covered in New York? I mean, up until then, the Mets from their World Series championship team in 1986 had always been portrayed as this sort of fun-loving bunch of rascals who, you know, got drunk on planes and insulted reporters and were up to shenanigans in the bullpen. Was this different? Did it mark a different tone? And did it linger in any way? Okay, so there are so many things going on at once that, you know, sort of parallel lines in what's happening in sports and the media at this point. So there's this background story about, you know, confronting date rape and confronting sexual assault in a sports context. Then there's the story of the Mets. Now, the Mets had been, you know, this beloved team in the late 80s that kind of hard partying, as you say. They never quite fulfilled their promise. By the early 90s, they were a bunch of overpaid assholes. I mean, this is just the the, the way they were covered. And, and especially by 91 and 92, that's when things totally went south. They had brought in all of these, you know, so-called character guys to be on the team. And then the scandals just got even more ridiculous. The ones that I remembered in place of this more serious one that I just wrote about were things like Brett Saberhagen spraying bleach at the reporters in the clubhouse, Bobby Bonilla threatening to show 
Bob Clappish, the Bronx, you know, stuff like that. There was just endless run of these just stories of the Mets acting like jerks and just how they were all overpaid, you know, idiots. Like that was that was the way that those teams were covered. And and that was, I think, enabled by the fact that the team was bad. Like it's a lot harder to do that kind of adversarial coverage of the hometown team if you're the beat reporters when the team is winning the World Series. But by the early 90s, they were just bad. So there was that shift in the coverage of the team in general. Then at the same time, Magic Johnson had just sort of come out as being HIV positive, And there was a shift in the way that the sex culture and the groupie culture around sports was being covered. And there was a way in, it changed in how the players themselves thought about the groupies. Clappish and John Harper have a book about the 92 season, and they describe Mets shortstop Kevin Elster, who's kind of the pretty boy Don Juan of the team, the one who most indulged in the groupie scene. And they talk about how freaked out Elster was by the Magic Johnson news and how he just like, I have to totally change it. You know, he's sort of talking to Clappish and he's saying he's not going to do any of this shit anymore. So that's another thing that's sort of like going on in the background just between 91 and the night of the alleged incident in March 92, when Powell steps forward, the culture has shifted just in that narrow sense of sports culture has shifted. So when she finally does come forward and make this allegation, the rules are different than they've been before. And there's tension there as the you know beat reporters are trying to figure out how to cover it. They already have a bit more of an adversarial relationship with the team than they used to. And then the tabloids send down these general assignment reporters to cover this as a, you know, as it relates to these bigger social issues about sexual assault. And suddenly there's conflict there. And what eventually happened at Mets spring training camp is the Mets just decided to boycott all media. They shut down the clubhouse. And then that itself became a source of coverage in the tabloids and elsewhere. The Mets, you know, media boycott and there was coverage of the conflict between the Mets and the reporters. So the one thing that's so striking in reading about the coverage is the absence of female journalists or when they're present, how they're present. You write about how Keith Hernandez, the beloved 86 World Series winning Met Keith Hernandez now calls the games, wrote in a memoir in the mid-80s about parading naked through the clubhouse in front of female journalists, like as, as a joke. Um, you know, the sports writers who were with the team every day don't, you know, seem to have taken the domestic violence accusations against Daryl Strawberry, for instance, seriously at all. They made a joke of it. Then the David Cohn incidents, the woman at the center of this case, the woman who made the accusation, you know, had dated David Cohn. And then, you know, around this time, Cohn himself is accused of rape. It's a story that we can get into next. But Cohn, again, was not arrested or charged. And then, you know, writers, Dan, saw Cohn as the hero in this case, as someone who'd overcome something as somebody who had the greatest game of his life when he thought he might get arrested. And it's played as this kind of hero's journey for him. It's incredibly disturbing. Yeah. So the Cone rape allegation happened on the last day of the season in 1991. So in October, and it was a story that lasted as a news event. It was like a three-day story, maybe. It was unfolding 
exactly at the moment of the Clarence Thomas hearings. So, you know, if you look at the newspaper covers back then, there'd just be like a big thing, picture of Anita Hill, and then a little box at the bottom, you know, David Cohn accused of rape. That went away almost immediately. The Philadelphia police decided that it was not a credible allegation, and they dropped the case. And then, as you say, yeah, Cohn, that became part of the legend, because while he was still under investigation, you know, there's this whole story behind the scenes that came out of how, you know, Mets GM Frank Cashin told him, it's the last day of the season, we're not in contention, why don't you just sit this one out? And Cohn said, you know, you gotta let me pitch. And he went out there and he just pitched this, like, bonkers game. I mean, he, I think it's a one-hitter and he struck out 19, something like that. And then stories were written about, how did you do it? What did you draw on? It was like that kind of sports reporting about this thing. It was just totally assumed that this case was indeed totally without merit. Again, the police did drop that case. I mean, I think an, another thing that's going on here that we should talk about is the way race played into all of these stories. So, um, you know, one might reasonably ask why David Cohn was accused of rape in October 1991. And, you know, the case was dropped almost immediately by the police. And then Three black players on the Mets, Dwight Gooden, Vince Coleman, and Daryl Boston, were accused of rape just a few months later. And it was a just a massive story and, you know, taken very, very seriously by the police in an investigation that unfolded over, you know, a number of weeks. I think that's worth considering, too. And yet the police in both cities ultimately chose not to attempt to prosecute. Years later, you report that the Philadelphia Inquirer discovered that multiple accounts of accusations of sexual assault by women were rejected by the Philadelphia Police Department out of hand. There was even a nickname for the office, the Lying Bitches Unit. I was stunned when you <laughs> the interview you did with one of the investigators in Port St. Lucie, Florida, who all these years later sort of rehashed these suspicions that he had that ruled out attempting to prosecute the case that amounted to nothing more than this sort of poor conjecture about what he thought may have happened and whether he could trust what she was saying that seemed to have very little to do with physical evidence. Yeah, he told me that, in his opinion, what was going on there was Powell had been jilted by David Cohn. She wanted to make him jealous. She'd picked up, you know, Gooden and the other guys at the nightclub and concocted this whole thing kind of to get Cohn's attention. She made goo-goo eyes at him, he told you. She made goo-goo eyes at him. And, you know, one of the things that I, I found very striking from that interview was, you know, I mentioned that this all unfolded on the same night and it, very close to, to where the William Kennedy Smith incident unfolded. And I don't know, to me, learning about that in 2019 and talking about it in 2020, I mean, that just speaks to, first of all, how prevalent these sorts of stories were at that moment that they were finally coming out. But more importantly, the underlying issue of how prevalent these incidents might have been. So that's kind of my perspective on it. But then talking to this detective who had worked the Mets case, he thought that the fact that these two things had happened on the same night was rather damning, was just evidence that, you know, they were, one was a copycat claim of the other. And, you know, what are the chances? So it, it just kind of, I think, shows how the same piece of information can be interpreted in, you know, radically different ways, depending on your priors about women's inclination to lie about such things, perhaps. Stefan, you know, Dan and I weren't working as 
journalists back then. We were both fans of of this team and would read coverage and follow them just as kids who are interested in baseball. But you were working as a journalist. You were at the AP at the time. What did this story kind of call to mind for you about this era, about reporters and about sort of societal views about sexual assault? You know, my memory of the case is, yeah, I remember the accusations. I don't remember much of it in detail. I wasn't, I wasn't covering sports at the time, but I did read the tabloids and I was living in New York. So I don't have a stark recollection other than to put it into the context of, oh yeah, all those Mets were assholes. And this was one more story that likely, you know, in your mind has a high probability of truth. And yet it was not being prosecuted because that's what often happened with athletes, that we overlook their, their sins um, on the field and that our institutions are very bad at following up. And look, Clarence Thomas was confirmed to the Supreme Court, right? William Kennedy Smith was acquitted. This was a part of a pattern of the way our systems, our institutions, our systems of jurisprudence also seem to function. And I'd be lying if I say I recall thinking like there's an injustice been done here, but I probably just didn't pay that close attention to the details of this case and its conclusion. And the thing, Dan, that really strikes me is that, yeah, it reminded me that I was a sentient working adult at this time, and I don't have a strong sense or strong memory of of outrage about what had happened, that we were inured to the way that sports and bigger institutions function in cases like these. I think one thing that sort of complicates, for me, certainly looking back and the situation complicates the situation and what I think might have been complicated at the time was that when the prosecutor declined to press charges, it's not like he came out and said, you know, this was a false allegation. Right. He came out and said, this is an unwinnable case. And I think that was a reasonable assessment of the evidence. I mean, there were things that about this case that would have made it really tricky, like the fact that it had taken her a year to come forward. The fact that, you know, there were no other witnesses. Like, there, these were, there, you know, there were, as a, as a rape case, it was kind of a stinker, you know? So I think, and you see that in the coverage at the, of, of the wrap-up of this investigation. Mm. It's not like the, you know, even the tabloid columnists are saying, you know, these Mets are innocent, let's move on. They're saying things like, this is really awful, who knows, let's move on. So what, what I found maybe more outrageous was not the way the legal system handled it, although some of the stuff we talked about with how the detectives investigating the case might have felt about it are, are alarming. But the way that, you know, confronted with this tricky situation where this was perhaps an unwinnable case, certainly in 1992, it might have been an unwinnable case. So it was dropped. And then everyone just kind of said, okay, let's never think about it again. I don't think it was, let's never think about it again, because we're all certain, individually certain that this thing never happened, but rather it's unpleasant, you know, let's play ball. You have to think about the fact this was also the beginning of the baseball season. So there's, for the sports writers at any rate, there's like a propulsion to like, let's put this, you know, weird spring training stuff aside and now the games mean something. So yeah, I mean, there were those kind of postmortem columns on April 10th and April 11th of 1992. And then by opening day, 
It's not even mentioned. Gooden pitched the home opener at Shea, and it's just like, how did he look? Well, he was pretty good, but he took the no decision or whatever. So, like, it's just, it evaporates. Meanwhile, other stuff that had come out in that spring training, you know, some of these other, like, tabloidy stories about the Mets acting like jerks or buffoons, lived on. So, for example, that same month of March 1992, allegations came out that David Cohn had masturbated in front of female fans on two occasions. That story got the full tabloid treatment. There was a famous New York Post headline, Weird Sex Act in Bullpen. That's one that I, now I'm just talking about myself as a Mets fan. I remember that vividly. And when I think back on those teams, Weird Sex Act in Bullpen is the first thing that comes to mind. What I find, again, this I can only speak for myself, but I thought it, at the beginning of this project, I was like, it's so crazy that I remember the cone masturbation stuff. And that happened like two weeks into this massive media story about the alleged rape. And I just, I like, like one has been wiped from my mind completely. And it's not like Cohn ever admitted that he did this, you know, quote unquote, weird sex act in, in the bullpen. He's always said he he didn't do any, quote unquote, weird sex act in the bullpen. So, but but for some reason, like that was just an easier thing to talk about. And you can see it in the in the columnists at the time, too. They They were just uncomfortable with this rape story because it was so awful and I think from their perspective who knows but the cone thing like that's it didn't seem like anyone was really hurt that much I guess there were no other repercussions on these players taken by the Mets or by Major League Baseball but for Cindy Powell the woman at the center of the case this was her life how in your reporting Dan what did you find out about how this affected her and what happened to her well, the experience of coming forward was devastating for her. Reporters knew who she was, but her name was never was never published. Um, and that is not the case for some of the other people who came forward around this time, as I said. But she was hounded at her place of work. She was followed to her appointments with her therapist. It was very, very unpleasant. Uh, and again, it, it ended with no charges. In the years that followed, her friends tell me that, you know, and... This is, again, there, there's no way to know for sure, but they. this is just what her friend said, that she changed, that um, her life did not go well from then in terms of her mental health. And she struggled for quite some time. She had a lot of tragedies unrelated to this in her family, the death of her brother, the death of her biological father. And then she died by suicide in 2012. It's impossible, Dan, to draw a straight line between this incident and her death. We can't say that the one caused the other, but in reading the story, it's just impossibly sad. And, you know, the fact that she was going through this, this struggle and had been erased, that nobody really considered her to be a person whose story was worth airing or worth remembering and that the players, um, you know, I think as the decades have passed, and I don't know if you agree with this, Dan, but the, there's just more kind of nostalgia for the good times that the Mets had, the, the rowdiness, the victories, the World Series, than there are memories of the bad times, whether it was losing or off the field. And so there is just this kind of glory and nostalgia that we attach to players. And I think that's really how they're they're remembered is when they're at their best. 
I think the Mets are almost a special case because the nostalgia has kind of hoovered up the good and the bad and and created a, a mythology of those teams where you know their failings are are part of this you know epic story of you know they should have won more World Series they should have been better but they got caught up in you know eighties party culture and and the way. The way Dwight Gooden is thought of, like his teammate Daryl Strawberry, are are these sort of tragic figures of New York sports, two of the all-time greatest New York baseball players ever, and yet their careers were nowhere near as good as they should have been. And um, even, you know, Gooden today is still sometimes in the news for various drug arrests and such. And um, it's it's kind of this, this he, he's a, a sad story, but it's a story kind of soaked in this nostalgia of what it means to be a Mets fan. And so I think, you know, even the bad stuff, even as the bad parts of it are kind of told and retold, what the fact that that the bad stuff was really bad gets erased. So it's not like we don't talk about the fact that, you know, these Mets had all these run-ins with the law. It's just that we say that and kind of smirk about it. It's like part of the, the glory years of the Mets was how shitty they were. So I think that is kind of a tragic part of this. And another tragic part of it is is Powell herself. I mean, her death in 2012 was a few years shy of when, to the extent that in 91 and 92, we kind of had this proto Me Too moment where suddenly there was the idea that, you know, you could come forward and, and hold these powerful men to account. Um, that kind of the the hope there wasn't realized, but you know it it came back around, and it came back around not so long after Powell passed away. And I talked to some of her friends who were curious about how she would have felt about the news stories of the last few years and how she might have kind of reframed her own experience. The story is headlined: "You guys are scaring me." A woman told police she was raped by three New York Mets. They were never charged. Almost 30 years later, I wanted to understand what happened. Danning Burr wrote it. We'll put it on our show page. Everybody should read it. Dan, thank you very much. Thanks for having me on. Can you set the stage a little bit so people understand what happened? In 1969, 14 black student athletes were kicked off their university's American football team for planning a show of support against racism. We were really protesting our treatment on the field. Amazing Sports Stories from the BBC World Service tells their story. We became brothers that day when he did that to us. We made a change. Fighting for what we deserve. Search for Amazing Sports Stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts. And now it is time for After Balls. Josh, this was not LSU's first national championship, was it? It was not. I mean, they won in... uh... 2007 well, and 2003. Yeah. We, right. were, we were alive for that. It's the first one of the hang up and listen era. True. And what, what some people are calling the hang up and listen era. And the third one of our lives, or maybe is it the fourth one of my life? I'm not sure. But their first national championship, 1958. Yeah, I don't think you were alive then. I was not alive. Seven to nothing, they beat Clemson. In the Sugar Bowl, the only score passed from halfback Billy Cannon to sophomore Mickey Mangum. Mangum, I am reading one of the smallest players on the team, 6'1", 190. Doesn't seem that small for 1958. Yeah, yeah, not very small. No, no. Graduated from LSU with a degree in petroleum engineering. That was uh, very common. Yes. So uh, there were six completed passes, I, I believe, in that game, which is like kind of a bad drive for Joe Burrow. Mm-hmm. Also, a thing to note about college football back then is that LSU won the national championship and they beat 
Clemson seven nothing in the Sugar Bowl. Those things weren't related. They determined the national champion yes. before the bowl games. Right. <laughs> it was before the bowl. A games? totally sensible system, before like everything else games? in college football. Before the yeah. bowl games. Hmm. Yeah, it was just like a, a little bonus at the end. Just they did it for fun. Just you know to see if they could get any extra injuries at the end of the year. Just a little little bonus round. All right, Stefan, what is your Mickey Mangum? On Twitter the other day, listener Ryan Kaltenbach noted that Bogdan Bogdanovich of the Utah Jazz scored 35 points with zero rebounds, assists, blocks, or steals in a game against New Orleans. Josh, you then reported that the only NBA player to rack up more points with nothing in those other positive counting stat categories was Allen Houston of the Knicks in 2000, who had 37 points. Impressive achievement. But let's talk about the totally inept performances. Players who enter a game and do nothing, no points, no shots, no free throws, no fouls, no turnovers. You might be aware that this achievement is known as a trillion when the box score line shows one minute followed by a string of zeros. The first reference to the trillion I was able to find is in a story by Mitch Album in the Detroit Free Press of April 18th, 1990. Album profiled two Pistons bench warmers, Scott Hastings and David Greenwood. Grab a sleeping bag, fill the canteen, Album wrote. We are headed for the end of the bench. Each of those last five words was capitalized. It isn't exactly the end of the world also capitalized. It's worse. Even Columbus never looked for the end of the bench. I could do a whole afterball about how bad this story is, but it's a little bit off point. Anyway, at one point in the story, Hastings and Greenwood talked about garbage time. Hastings recalled that he once entered a game with 12.8 seconds left and came out with 11.6 seconds left. Yeah, I got what we called a trillion, he said. A trillion, Album wrote? Yeah, Hastings said. That's when the box score reads one minute played followed by a row of zeros. I got lots of those. A trillion, Album wrote again? And didn't follow up at all. Hastings said and or album typed nine zeros, which would be a billion, not a trillion, which as far as I can tell was the case in box scores of the day. Poetic license, whatever. But the rise of big box score led to an actual trillion, 12 potential zeros. Field goals made, field goals attempted, three pointers made, free throws made, offensive rebounds, total rebounds, assists, steals, blocks, turnovers, personal fouls, points. There's been even more box score creep over the years. Field goals, three-pointers, and free throws attempted. Two-pointers made and attempted, plus-minus. Some boxes include minutes and seconds played, which really messes up the all-zeros aesthetic. In any case, the basic box score on ESPN and NBA.com includes 15 categories in a player's control, so the quadrillion is the new trillion. Now, a lot of players have recorded multiple trillions in their career. Jed Bushler of the 1990s Bulls had 55. The former player Mark Titus, now a writer and commentator, has made sort of a, a career out of it. I think his Twitter handle is Club Trillion. But I wanted to find the most futile individual game performances, the biggest trillions in NBA history. Fortunately, historical searches on basketball reference show full minutes and ignore plus minus. They also include separate columns for two-point field goals made and attempted that bumps us up to 17 potential zeros which would be a hundred quadrillion for one minute played play 10 minutes though and do nothing and it's a one followed by 18 zeros the nice round quintillion the quintillion is the new quadrillion 
All right, so now it's time to remember some guys who piled up zeros. The record for minutes played while recording just one counting stat is Stan McKenzie of the Baltimore Bullets, who on March 8th, 1968, played 19 minutes and accumulated one and only one foul. But there were only 10 counting stats at the time, which works out to a measly 190 billion and 10. In the quintillion era, our one stat champ is Kevin Gamble of the Celtics, who on May 17th, 1991, played 18 minutes and had one foul. But that is not perfection. For all eras, the dubious distinction of most minutes played with nothing at all to show for it in the box score that I was able to find belongs to Kenny Sears of the Knicks. Sears was the fourth pick of the 1955 draft. He twice led the Knicks in scoring, but not on February 4th, 1956 against Syracuse. Sears played 15 minutes and tallied no stats. So 15 minutes, all-time mark, but the NBA of 1956, of course, didn't have a three-point shot. It didn't break out offensive and defensive rebounds. It didn't tally steals, blocks, or turnovers. So Sears' 15 is followed by just 10 zeros, a mere $150 billion. In 1976, Steve Kaberski of the Celtics had 13 minutes of bupkis in 11 categories, a $1.3 trillion. In 1977, Keith Starr of the Bulls went 14 minutes in 14 categories, $1.4 quadrillion. Alan Level of the Rockets did 12 minutes in 15 categories in 1981, a 12 quadrillion, but still no quintillion. And then I finally found it, the high water mark, the leader in the clubhouse, the gold standard of null sucking void in modern NBA box score history is 12 minutes with 17 goose eggs, a 1.2 quintillion. It is a three-way tie among Kenny Walker of the Washington Bullets. Skywalker, baby. On December 11th, 1993. Damon Jones of the Cavaliers on June 7th, 2007, in game one of the NBA Finals, no less. Wow. And Rashad Vaughn of the Bucks on January 15th, 2016. I should note here that the basketball reference box includes a final column called Game Score, which is a stat created by John Hollinger. Walker, Jones, and Vaughn each, of course, registered a game score of 0.0 which if you include that makes 19 zeros. So the number to beat is not 1.2 quintillion, it's 120 quintillion. Honorable mention to Will Barton, Tyrone Corbin, Ricky Green, Gerald Madkins, Walter McCarty, Quincy Pondexter, and Norman Powell, all of whom have recorded a 110 quintillion. Finally, a shout out to Joel Anthony, the Miami center, who tops the basketball reference list of ineptitude. On New Year's Day 2011 against the Trailblazers, Anthony played 29 minutes, 29 minutes, and recorded 15 zeros, one turnover, and four fouls, a two quintillion, 900 quadrillion, 140. That's a big number. Just feels so right that Damon Jones is at the top. Doesn't it, though? A little disappointed to see Kenny Walker on there. Love Kenny Walker, love Skywalker, especially when he was a Nick. Josh, what's your Mickey Mangum? So we are launching, I, I mentioned the Hang Up and Listen era as we were uh, starting our Afterball segment. And uh, obviously an e extremely beloved uh, by us and, and listeners and crucial period in the Hang Up and Listen era was the Mike Pesca era of Hang Up and Listen. And a crucial component of at least part of the Mike Pesca era was the Pesca trivia 
segment of Hang Up and Listen. It was intense. Carmen C., the great Carmen Mm -hmm. C., would often win Mm -hmm. the Hang Up and Listen trivia. Pesca would put a huge amount of time and effort and work and just the the glorious Pesca brain and all of its synaptic firings. Carmen C., the James Holzhauer of Hang Up and Listen (laughs) trivia. Yeah, we should have a Hang Up and Listen trivia tournament of champions, except I think it would just be three Carmen C's. Anyway, as we welcome Joel into the fold, I was thinking about back on the show and back on trivia and also on the fact that occasionally I will go to the website Sporkle, S-P-O-R-C-L-E, which has quizzes and they have a bunch on sports and some of the quizzes are really good. Some of them are bad. Some of them are fun. And some of them make you kind of feel bad about yourself, either because you know a lot of useless crap or because it reminds you that your memory is getting getting really bad. So there's one Sporkle quiz that I kind of want to put in your head to puzzle over while I talk about another one. The first one, Stefan, is these are teams in the four sports leagues in North America where the place name and the nickname start with the same letter. I'll give you one for free play. We could go with Seattle Seahawks Mm -hmm. as one. They also included New Jersey Nets, which was strange. And when you you typed in Nets, the answer that pops up is now the Brooklyn Nets, which seems like it kind of violates the the spirit. But there are one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, uh, 12, uh, 16 of these in baseball, basketball, Mm -hmm. football, and hockey, where the place name and the nickname start with the same letter. And that does not include now the Brooklyn Nets. So I did that. I, I missed a four in whatever the time span was. So you can see if you can can beat me. Mm-hmm. But then I was looking at another quiz, Stefan. There was NFL leaders from 2014. And I'd ask you in like every category, passing, rushing, you know, sacks, like everything, just to like type in as many of the leaders as you can think of. And this is from five years ago. And the thing that struck me the most is like, obviously, you're not going to remember everybody, both because who the hell remembers who had the most like fumble recoveries in, in 2014. But I could not think of out of the 10 leaders in rushing yards, I got like three. <laughs> and it just shows. I, I mean, it's like it is it is about how like, you know, uh, I I don't particularly have a great memory for that stuff. It's hard to remember. But also, it's like about the lifespan of running backs in the NFL, that this is a showcase position or was a showcase position in the sport. And, you know, the careers are so, so ephemeral. Um, The guys who are superstars and seem unstoppable it just takes so little time for them to fade from the scene. And, you know, one of the guys I didn't remember is Frank Gore, who actually is still in the league piling up yards at an advanced age for a running back. But there are other guys who seem like they've just been gone forever, like Eddie Lacy, Justin Forsett, Lamar Miller. I haven't thought about that guy in a in a long time. And so it's uh, it was a it was a quiz that made me sad, Stefan. Some quizzes do that. I'm busy not really listening to you, and I'm typing the names of of pro sports teams that have the same first and last name letter. Okay, what do you got? Um, I'm not done, but I got Chicago Cubs, Buffalo Bills, New York Knicks, Tennessee Titans, L.A. Lakers, Boston Bruins, Miami Marlins. Do they count? Washington Wizards. Is it the Florida Marlins or is it the Miami Marlins now? I've lost track. It's Miami. It's Miami. Thank you. Uh, Washington Wizards, Philadelphia Phillies, Philadelphia Flyers, Cleveland Cavaliers, and that's where I stopped typing to talk to you. 
Pittsburgh Pirates. So you think that New York Knicks and Philadelphia Flyers start with the same, the, the nickname start with the same letter? Well, that was my question. Does it have to be letter or is it sound? <laughs> it's, it's letter. It should be sound. New York Knicks. We're talking about alliteration. We're not talking about Pittsburgh Penguins. <laughs> I don't write the quizzes, but I think it makes sense. Uh, maybe, maybe that's Fine. a separate quiz. Take them off. Start. Take them off of my list. See if I care. All right. Are you and the listeners ready to hear the full list? can't believe I'm taking the flyers off. I mean, they should have just spelled it P-H-L-Y-E-R-S. All right, here we go. And you got a lot. That was impressive. Uh, you did a good job ignoring what I, everything I was saying. All right, the answers are, in baseball, Philadelphia Phillies, Miami Marlins, Chicago Cubs, Pittsburgh Pirates, and Anaheim, Anaheim Angels. Angels. Ugh. Come on, they're really the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim. Does that count? <laughs> in the NBA, we have Cleveland Cavaliers, Washington Wizards, LA Lakers, San Antonio Spurs. In the NFL, Buffalo Bills, Jacksonville Jaguars, Tennessee Titans, Seattle Seahawks. And in the NHL, Pittsburgh Penguins, Boston Bruins, and last chance. Um, Hang on. San Jose Sharks. San Jose Sharks. You got it. Nailed it. So I missed the Spurs, the Jags, the Angels. And the Sharks. Seahawks, I'm not counting because you said it at the top of the show. So that was the gimme. I didn't have to write that one down. All right. That's pretty good. That's right. not bad. I would have gotten the rest. Not a bad performance from a word freak. My question is, do you, this is the insight into one's mind. Did you solve that by going sport by sport, like division by division? Or did you do it geographically city by city, which is what I did? <laughs> That's funny that you asked that. I sometimes just imagine the like divisions in whatever sport and just go through each Mm -hmm. division, like AL East, AL Central, whatever. Um, Sometimes I do it by, I I do the like 50 state song and think alphabetically about like, all right, what are the teams in uh, Arizona? What are the teams in California? For this, because it was pan sport, I had a visual of the map of the United States in my head and I was moving down the seaboards and across the country. Interesting. Yeah, I've never done that, but that's that's a reasonable strategy. Thanks. That is our show for today. Our producer is Melissa Kaplan. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup, and you can email us at hangup at slate.com. If you're still here, I'm guessing you might want even more hangup. In our bonus segment this week, Josh, Joel, and I talked about the NFL. Lamar Jackson had eight turnovers all year, but had, you know, what, three against Tennessee. So, I mean, that's just, that's the kind of stuff that's very random. Like, you know, it's not like he throws a lot of interceptable balls. It's not like he's fumbled a lot. To hear that conversation, join Slate Plus for just $35 for the first year. You can sign up at slate.com slash hangupplus. For Josh Levine and Joel Anderson, I'm Stefan Fatsis. Remember Zelmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., 
on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. <laughs>